Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome to our new home in the Shenandoah Valley. I trust you had an easy enough time finding your way here. I know directions that include turn off the paved road can be tricky, but we do enjoy being away from prying eyes, don't we? You may recall that in late October of last year, I had put out a bit of a call on Facebook for suggestions for a new home for the show, and Tales to Terrify received a much larger response than I had expected. Mr. Jason Bowen had suggested that we take a page from the book of the old Mysterious Traveler radio show. His suggestion received more likes by a narrow margin, so we looked into things. I listened to a few episodes of the show that I could find on YouTube. I may recommend the wonderfully titled No Grave Can Hold Me. Link will be in the show notes if you're interested. Eventually, I had to shelve that one because, to be honest... I don't think I could keep up with the Foley work to do that justice. However, it did inspire me to stretch the travel from Chicago to this chilly cabin in Virginia out a bit. Mike Dominic's suggestion of taking more pages from more older radio shows was also duly investigated, but again, Foley work to do it justice was the Achilles heel of it. Then came Ms. Tracy, Annette Clark, and Amy Dree's suggestion of the office of a dusty old museum somewhere in its basement, not too far from its cachet of artifacts. Many cursed, all interesting. I had actually drafted up a handful of ideas for this one being a personal favorite. In the spirit of cursed monkey paws, the list of artifacts that I put together to think about what we might have to showcase before any given visit grew to about a dozen, including Egyptian onks, a jar of eyes, a souvenir from Baba Yaga, and a Haitian fetish that would wiggle its way into your dreams. When I ran this past a group of friends who didn't listen to the podcast, they politely told me it was corny, and I scrapped it. I think the problem is my delivery. Give me about 30 years to age, and I'm certain I'll do a much better wizened curator than I do now. Many suggestions were made for libraries or bookstores or studies, which I felt necessary to consider as I am married to a librarian. But I had to settle quite comfortably on the cabin in the woods. As I'm giving credit to people's ideas, the first one to make the common thread was Tina Kolakowski. However, Barry Faulkner and Kelly McMillan also put forth the ideas. Ignore, if you can, for a moment, the trope of the cabin in the woods. You know, the ones that I mean. The ones with college kids. The bro. The stoner. The girl who is obviously about to be killed but decides the right course of action is to take all of her clothes off. The one who is smart enough to say, I don't know about this, guys but not smart enough to get in the car and leave. That cabin in the woods, put it aside. 
As a irregular hiker, I've been caught in torrential downpours, miscalculated hike durations, and found myself without illumination with miles to go in the night, and come to the realization that on a very unpopular trail, that should I break my tibia or some other bone below the navel, I'd either have to drag myself for quite a ways, or hope that this week is one that someone else decided to take a walk in the woods. I mention all of this in our chosen genre of fiction or even thought. There are few stories that manage to escape the idea of isolation, be it physically, spiritually, socially, or emotionally. What better captures that than a cabin in the woods? Tonight's first story finds a mother becoming more and more distant from the realities around her, damaging those closest to her, and it has been brought to us by David Neal Wilson, who has been writing and publishing horror, dark fantasy, and science fiction since the mid-80s. An ordained minister, once president of the Horror Writers Association, and multiple recipient of the Bram Stoker Award, his novels include Maelstrom, The Moat in Andrea's Eye, Deep Blue, The Grail's Covenant Trilogy, Star Trek Voyager, Chrysalis, Except You Go Through Shadow, This Is My Blood, Ancient Eyes, On the Third Day, the Orpheus Wheel, and Vintage Soul, Book One, and the Dechance Chronicles. The Stargate Atlantis novel Brimstone, written with Patricia Lee McComber in his most recent. He has over 150 short stories published in anthologies, magazines, and five collections. The most recent of which were Defining Moments, published in 2007 by WFC award-winning Sarab Press and the currently available And We and Other States of Madness from Dark Regions Press. His work has appeared in and is due out in various anthologies and magazines. David lives and loves with Patricia Lee McComber in the historic William R. White House in Hertford, North Carolina, with their children Billy, Zach, Zane, and Katie, and occasionally their genius college daughter, Stephanie. David is CEO and founder of Crossroad Press, a cutting-edge digital publishing company specializing in electronic novels, collections, and nonfiction, as well as unabridged audiobooks. Find more about Crossroad Press either at the Crossroad Press blog, the Crossroad Press online store, or the Digital Drive-In, a blog filled with reviews, interviews, podcasts, and video clips. And now, David Niels Wilson's Blameless. Susan poured the last of the gin over her already diluted orange juice and took a big gulp. In the background, loud and insistent, little Bobby continued to wail. She could almost imagine that the sounds were meant as penance, that the stabbing pain of the headache they brought was for atonement, not accusation. Almost. Retrieving the bottle of formula she'd been heating on the stove, she threw her own empty bottle into the trash and moved slowly into the hall, heading for the baby's room. Her baby's room. Hers end. She felt the chilling touch of ice gin on her wrist as her hand began shaking violently. She had to get a grip on this, a tighter grip even than she had on the baby bottle in her hand, which was threatening to collapse from the pressure. There was no reason for this to ruin her life. Their life. She tried once more to soothe herself with a quick gulp of her drink. At least she could lower the level in the glass to where she wouldn't be spilling it. God knew that she and John had enough to worry about without her greeting him at the door in gin-soaked clothes. The baby's door was slightly ajar, leaking a small wedge of light into the gloomy hall. Susan had not yet bothered to turn on any of the home's other lights, feeling that the dim, colorless atmosphere was more fitted to her own mood. Now Bobby's wailing cries emanating from the same spot as the only light in the house, had an almost hypnotic, focusing effect. She felt drawn forward, no choices remaining, drawn forward and back at the same time. John had been gone so many times over the last few years, sometimes just a day, other times nearly a month. Business, paying the bills, building for their future. All these were fine reasons for his absence. They made sense, and they made money, and through it all he was as straight and reliable as the proverbial arrow. 
blameless. But damn it, he was always gone, and she had been weak. Susan had considered herself fortunate, unemployed and 26, still living at home with her aging parents when John had asked her to marry him. He was kind, gentle, very successful, and the only one to offer. Of course, she hadn't exactly been out and available. In fact, if it hadn't been for fate, her flat tire, and almost phenomenal persistence on John's part thereafter, she never would have gone out with him, either. She had been comfortable, if not exceptionally happy, living at home and sharing all of her deep emotional moments with an endless series of romance novels. Now they were a family, living together in their own small home. She, John, and Bobby, the baby. She still couldn't bring the words, their baby, to her lips. Not when she couldn't be sure. Not when her one moment of weakness had drawn tight the strings of her destiny. She brought her drink to her lips instead, crossing the room's threshold with a sudden, jerky step. It seemed preternaturally bright in the room. Everything gleamed yellow and blue. Stuffed creatures, great and small, fixed her with lifeless, leering stares. She went to the side of the crib and looked down at her crying child. Chubby fingers groped for the bottle in her hand, tiny feet moving in tandem. So innocent. Blameless. She gently placed the bottle in Bobby's hands and watched as he brought the nipple to his mouth. Then his eyes rose to hers, locking with them. Green eyes. Sea green, dancing eyes just like his father's. She bit off a cry of surprise at the intensity of the memory that one quick glance had sent shivering through her. Collapsing into the chair beside the crib, she rolled into a ball, into herself, swallowing the last of her gin as the room began to fade, as her sight grew dull. The air swirled, solidified by the smoke of a dozen different brands of tobacco. The lights, dim and hazy, filtered through stale, cloudy air to tease at her senses with colored fluorescent rainbows. Unknown challenges hovered on all sides, untested waters. Heads turned as she entered, tentative steps and wide eyes announcing her naivety to the world. Fascinated, she moved through the bar, committing herself. The doors slid shut behind her with quiet finality. The stool she chose lay in a shadowed, isolated corner by the pool table. She sank into the cool plastic of its cushion and placed her purse on the bar, bringing her eyes up to meet those of the large, curly-haired bartender. Gin and tonic, she managed, her tongue seemingly reluctant to form the words. It was as if the words, once spoken, would cement her to this strange, frightening new place, as if silence might shield her. The man disappeared without a word, swiping his white towel across the bar where previous patrons had left traces of bottles, glasses, and slowed reflexes. She nearly jumped off her stool when she felt the man's hand come to rest on her shoulder. Somehow he was just there, tall, imposing, dark hair waving back over his shoulders. The first thing she saw as her heart struggled to flutter back to earth was his eyes. They were a deep sea-green, compelling and warm. She wanted to get up, to run, to escape back to her lonely home and her empty bed. Then he spoke. His voice was as warm as his eyes. Hey, pretty lady, mind if I join you? She wanted to scream, yes, yes, I mind. She wanted this dark stranger with the powerful eyes to disappear, wanted his hand to release her shoulder from the growing glow of warmth it was pulsing into her traitorous body. She shook her head, almost imperceptibly. Whether he noticed or not, she never knew. He sat down. She managed to tear her eyes from his. Why was it so damned hard? His arm rested on the bar, one large, slender hand firmly planted atop her own. She stared, fascinated. On his forearm, almost mystical in the odd, glowing haze of smoke and neon light, was a tattoo of a dragon. It was green and gold, cuffing his wrist and snaking back up to slavering jaws and glittering eyes that peered at her from just below his elbow. She had never been so close to a tattoo. The thought almost amused her. It added to the surreality of the moment. 
How many times had she read about people feeling they were outside reality looking in? You don't look like a regular, he was saying. New in town? Slumming? How about a hint? His words seemed like some off-kilter script, a not-quite-real-time overdub from another planet. His eyes danced. Her mind fought wildly for control of the situation. An image from her childhood surfaced. That snake in the jungle book. What had its name been? Ka? She felt as the boy must have, as if she was being hypnotized. At the same time, her rational side told her it was only her fear, her guilt over being out with John away, that had robbed her of her wits. That and the damned gin. The drink she'd ordered would not be the evening's first, not by a long shot. Somehow, once she had stepped through the doors of this place, a commitment had been made. She could still hear Father Simon intoning, To commit the sin in your mind is to commit the sin. She knew that whatever happened next, she was guilty. It was like an inevitable chain of events had grabbed her and was rushing her along, helpless. No escape. I... I have to go, she managed, feebly and rising too quickly. I'm sorry. His eyes flickered from amusement to curiosity, somehow managing to do so while snaking up and down the length of her body. She cursed whatever stupid impulse had led her to wear such a short skirt. You haven't finished your drink, he observed, nodding toward the glass that now sat before her. Reaching for his wallet, he threw a five on the bar. On me, friend, he said. The bartender shrugged and took the bill. Susan was far too slow to protest. There had been more. More meaningless words. More drinks. Her mind drifted through scattered images, stumbling from the bar stool. Strong arms supporting her. Soothing words. Heat. There had been such heat wherever he had touched her, and he had touched her over and over, lingering in places in ways that John never would have dreamed of, especially in public. They had been in his car before she even realized she would not be going home that night. Her thigh pressed so tightly against him that he had trouble manipulating the gear shift or had the lingering tangles of his arm and her legs been intentional. More heat. The room came into focus, melding with the final glimpse of her dream, memory. The house had seemed so surreal the morning after. He'd dropped her at her car, the reality of the day seeping insidiously between them. Somehow his eyes had seemed less bright the tattoo more threatening and less mysterious. She hadn't even asked his name, and the sunlight had shone through the tinted glass of the car's windows, bright and hot. A celestial spotlight. There she is, adulterous. The guilt had erased the final remnant of the night's pleasure, leaving her with the realization that her life and everything about it was irreversibly changed. Something was lost. The fuzzy, pounding pain of the headache would pass, the hangover would fade. The guilt would grow. She had been raised a strict Catholic. Guilt was a built-in reflex, familiar and relentless. Now she lived in an alcohol-warped dream state. Everyday chores passed in meaningless drudgery. Every conversation, everything she and John did, was like some stilted, pseudo-life play. Each moment seemed hinge on that coming confrontation, that one ruinous second in time when her sins would be laid bare. The realization that there was no reason to believe John would ever know did nothing to change things. She knew. Somehow, she thought, the baby did too. It was in his eyes, Bobby's, when he looked up at John. He smiled, curious as any other child, but it did not seem to have that bond, that natural recognition a child has for his parent. It was the same look Bobby would give one of their friends or her parents. When looking at her, those eyes were much more expressive, possessive even. John had been so happy. Pregnant? He'd exclaimed, his face almost comical, as though he'd never even considered the possibility. We're going to have a baby? Our baby? It had been all Susan could do not to break down into hysterical sobs. She had smiled shyly the tears somehow passing for happiness, while her heart screamed, I don't know. I don't know. Bobby continued to suck down the formula, 
tiny feet kicking contented circles in the air. She tried to smile down at him, to find that bond that was expected of her. There was a bond, but it was built on guilt, pain, and self-recrimination. His vacant baby smile seemed more like an accusatory leer, her living, breathing, and unforgiving conscience. She feared she would never love her child, would never know the joy that she and her own mother had shared. She reached out, brushing a straying lock of feather-thin hair from Bobby's forehead. He batted at her with one tiny fist, and she jerked her hand back as though she'd been bitten. Sucking in a deep breath, she could only stare as her skill grew clammy. The empty gin glass fell from her nerveless fingers, bouncing once off the arm of the chair as it tumbled to the floor. On the baby's arm, curling and twisting, in an intricate swirl of green and gold, was a tiny dragon. Its eyes were pinpricks of emerald, glittering and evil. Only a supreme effort and a gulping spasm of tortured breath enabled her to reach out, catching herself on the side of the crib. Even so, she found herself kneeling, head hung and eyes closed, on the carpeted floor, kneeling in repentance, kneeling in trembling fear. After long moments of concentrated effort, she managed to still her pounding heart enough to rise. It was a hallucination. It was a figment of imagination and guilt combined. A cruel trick of her mind upon her heart. That was reality, and she grasped at it. Babies aren't born with tattoos, no matter who the father. Tiny children do not have snaking, serpentine lizards wrapped around their forearms. And she wasn't crazy. She rose slowly, keeping her eyes carefully directed at the floor beneath her. It was one thing to convince herself of what she would not see, another to force her eyes to cooperate. One quick peek, one short flash of her eyes over the arm of her child, and things would right themselves again, as right as they could ever be. She tilted her head, brought her sight in line with Bobby's flailing toes, traced the chubby line of his belly, rising and falling gently as he fed, reached his arm. She screamed, and this time she fell hard. The eyes still stared up at her from Bobby's arm, leering. That vision, Bobby, the crib, the dragon, all of it blurred before her eyes in a surreal panorama of fear and nausea. Blackness yawned invitingly, and she dove inside. From far away, she felt her head striking the floor, sending small sparks of light to dance in the void. Then there was nothing. Honey? Susan? The words slipped sinuously through the darkness to drag at her, pulling her to the surface. She fought, struggled for the peace and the solitude, but the voice was insistent. John. At first, she couldn't recall what had happened. She lay on the floor in Bobby's room. Her head cradled in the arms of a large teddy bear John had used as an improvised pillow. She blinked her eyes, afraid of the pain that moving would bring. There was a dull throb in the back of her head pulsing along with her heart. John. Bobby. Oh my God, she whispered. Whirling, she staggered to her feet, nearly falling back to the floor as vertigo took control. She grasped the edge of the crib, hands digging into the wooden railing and rocking the small bed violently, nearly toppling it. What the hell are you doing, John said, worry and anger now battling in his eyes, which strayed down to the baby. He grabbed under her arms, steadying her. She paid no attention, shaking her head and looking into the crib. Bobby lay wide-eyed and on the verge of frightened tears. His arm was covered by a tiny blanket, hidden. Momentary relief flooded her as she fought to regain her senses, but just as soon, it was gone. John, having decided she was now steady on her feet, had released her and was reaching for Bobby. No, she cried, regretting the outburst instantly and the explanation it would require. Without taking time to think, she stumbled away from the crib, letting her knees buckle beneath her again, falling. John's hands hovered for a moment over the blanket, about to wipe out years of happiness with a single gesture, without a chance. Then he pulled back, rushing to her side and breaking her fall, all signs of anger gone. Honey, he asked urgently, what's wrong? Are you 
Drunk? Her own anger flared momentarily until she caught sight of the empty glass lying beneath the crib. What the hell else was he supposed to think? No, she managed. I, I was sitting there in the chair watching Bobby sleep. I think maybe I just stood up too fast. I passed out, and I think I hit my head. You've got quite a knot on it, John commented, brushing his fingers gingerly across her scalp and pulling her closer. You've got to be more careful. What if you'd fallen on the crib? Her anger almost returned. Was that it? Was he concerned only for the damage she might have done to the damned baby? The baby that wasn't even... She took a deep breath. That line of thought led only to trouble. She needed to get her wits back and figure out what to do before John saw. Would you get me a glass of water, honey? She asked, sitting up slightly. My mouth is kind of dry. Of course, he replied, rising quickly. As soon as he was out of sight, Susan stumbled across the room and dug out one of Bobby's sleepers, one with long sleeves. Working frantically, she pulled off the shorts the baby was wearing and stuffed him hurriedly into the heavier outfit. She was just zipping the front as John walked back in. What are you doing? he asked, puzzled. Isn't it a bit hot for that? I felt a chill, she said, drawing Bobby up to rest against her chest. You can never be too careful, you know. John shook his head, but he did not argue the point. Here's your water, he said, holding out the glass and reaching for the baby. Reluctantly, she handed him over, fearing each moment that John would get some wild urge to unzip the sleeper. He did not. Somehow she managed to cook supper. Soon after that, Bobby was asleep, sweating in the heavy flannel, but safely tucked in. Susan's heart raced. She led John off to their own bed as quickly as she could. She didn't want to make love. Not now. But she needed the closeness, the comfort of him. Besides, the more tightly she was wrapped around him, the more totally they were bonded, the less chance he might grow restless and go in to check on the baby. It was several hours before he fell asleep in her arms, and another hour beyond that, when she allowed herself to drop into a restless, fitful pit of darkness and nightmares. Dragons filled her dreams. Dragons and dancing, sea-green eyes. It's only a three-day trip this time, honey, John was saying, gulping down the last drops of his third cup of coffee and reaching for his briefcase. After this, I promise I'll take some time off. Time for you and Bobby. She just smiled her face a mask of false, plastic complacency. Her mind was whirling, making her dizzy and nauseous. John took her in his arms, giving her one last hug, and started down the hall to the baby's room. Her heart froze, then began pulsing so heavily that the sound deafened her. What if he saw? Was this the moment? The end? Her knees began to tremble, and she fell heavily into one of the dining room chairs. Eyes riveted to the hall, to that door. She saw John exit the room through a milky haze. He was smiling, calling some sort of childish farewell over his shoulder to the doorway, to the baby. She rose, numb and cold, allowing him to hug her a last time, but unable to return any pressure. Honey, he said, is something wrong? You look pale. I... I'll be all right, she answered, shaking her head slowly back and forth. I just didn't sleep well last night. I think I'll lie down for a little while. Well, he said, obviously not convinced. I'll be at the office for a couple hours before I take off. If you need me, call, okay? I will, she said softly. Have a good trip. Then he was gone. She hesitated, not wanting to do what she knew she had to. But in the end, she had no choice. She felt as if she were floating down the hallway to the baby's room. Bobby was awake, gurgling and spitting. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Tiny arms windmilling in pointless baby circles. His eyes followed her as she approached. He seemed to understand. Surely when he was grown and she could share this with him, he would understand. She reached down gently and unzipped the sleeper, sliding it back off his shoulders. His diaper was wet, but she paid no attention to it. In a few moments, it wouldn't matter. The bath would cleanse it all away. The bath could purify him. Steam rose in heavy, aromatic clouds from the tub. The water was hot, very hot. Beside the tub, she had laid out the items she would need. Bandages, Vaseline, and a ball of gray, fluffy, still wool. Bobby lay on a towel on the floor beside the tub, gazing up at her in curiosity. She returned the gaze as lovingly as possible, but the dragon, that damnable tattooed monstrosity on his arm, seemed to writhe and twist, mocking her. It's okay, baby, she explained softly, picking the child up and holding him above the water in the tub. Mommy's going to fix everything. Don't you worry. Daddy will never see it. Bobby went into the water with a hiss of steam and a scream. She ignored him, grabbing the steel wool in one hand and holding him tightly with the other. Don't fight me, honey, she chided, eyes glazed. Bobby's eyes were rolling back in his head, his breath stolen by the blistering heat and the shock of the pain on his tiny arm as she rubbed frantically. It took only a few short moments, though they stretched in her mind to an eternity of red, bloody water that swirled and streamed, and racking of sobs of pain that shook her son mercilessly. Then it was over. The arm was a mass of red, bleeding and raw, but there was no sign of the dragon. She was safe. Everything would be fine. Tears of happiness welled in her eyes, and she lifted Bobby carefully from the water, pulling him close, mindless of the blood. Just as his breath returned, bringing with it the outraged screams of pain that would go on and on, he opened his eyes. It was only for a second, one long, accusing second, but it was enough. Her heart almost stopped. Then she remembered the eyes, the sea-green eyes. Not her eyes, not like John's either his eyes. Someone would notice. Someone would mention it to John, maybe a friend at work, when she wasn't even around. He would wonder. How could he not? Tests would follow. Blood tests didn't lie. She had to finish. She had to make sure. The house was dark and silent when John returned three days later. There was no light on the porch, but the front door was unlocked. Susan, he called out, setting his things by the door and looking around the room, trying to adjust his sight to the darkness. Susan, are you here? There was no answer, 
but he could hear a sound coming from down the hall, from Bobby's room, a steady creaking. He headed down the hall, flicking on the lights as he went. Somehow, the sudden brilliant illumination did nothing to comfort him. An icy claw gripped his heart, unreasoning fear hurrying his steps. Susan, he repeated as he entered the baby's room. She was sitting in the rocker, her back to him, rocking slowly up and back. The curtains were open, and she stared out into the darkness beyond. She rose slowly, still not speaking. Bobby was cradled in her arms, wrapped tightly in a soft blue blanket that covered him so completely that he wondered if the child wouldn't be too warm. And as she slowly turned, he could see that her face, though a trifle gaunt, was alight with a beaming smile. He loved the way her eyes glittered when she was happy. Beautiful, deep brown eyes, just like Bobby's. Maybe she was feeling better after all. Returning her smile, he walked closer, and she turned slightly, letting the blanket that covered his son's face slip aside. Bobby's head lolled to the side, and he could see that the baby's breathing was rough and very weak. A tiny arm slid out from beneath the blanket covered in crusty bandages. He felt the scream building, rising from so deep inside that he was afraid he'd be trapped within it, that it would never break free. Susan was not paying any attention. Turned fully toward him now, she smiled at him vacantly, perhaps staring into his soul. It was impossible to tell through the blood-stained bandages he could now see covering the upper half of her face. Don't you see? she asked impatiently. Everything's going to be all right now, honey. Her voice sounded unnaturally tight, strained. My eyes wouldn't see, but I fixed them. They won't be able to lie to me. Not anymore. I'll be much better now. Better to Bobby and better to you. He saw her quiver, as if she were crying. But there was no way to tell. I know he's our son now. Our brown-eyed baby boy. Yours and mine, honey. Welcome home. That was David Neal Wilson's Blameless, as read to us by Tales to Terrify's old friend Antoinette. Bergen. She is twisted and dark, sarcastic and pessimistic, weird and demented. All these things combined somehow make her absolutely adorable. She is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate, and has been known to mail packages of lime jello to people she deems worthy. She can be found on Twitter as at Nettie underscore Bergen and probably won't harm you if you follow her. Our second story of the night comes to us from B.E. Scully. She writes tales dark and strange, drinks red wine and murky beer, cooks, reads, studies, and believes in the golden key. Scully lives in a haunted red house that lacks a foundation in the misty woods of Oregon with a variety of human and animal companions. Scully's short story collection, The Knife and the Wound It Deals, is currently available on Amazon and other fine venues, along with the critically acclaimed gothic thriller, Verland, The Transformation. In the show notes, I'll put in a couple of links. The first is a bit of a Q&A on Furbolg Publishing's website with B.E. Scully in reference to the anthology of short stories, Enter at Your Own Risk, The End is the Beginning. Also, in that same page, you'll see the response to the same questions by another author in the anthology, none other than Tales to Terrify's founder, Lawrence Centaro. And now, Scully's Who is Like God. At first, he hadn't noticed the source of the bright crimson drops, splattering the snow and then seeping outward through the first slush of spring. He had been too surprised to find this shock of life here amid the ashen air that still permanently filtered the sun, the endless backdrop of abandoned shacks and rotting heaps of debris. So it took a moment before he fully observed the severed sow's head skewered on a stake, eyes alive with crawling flies, snout pointing up towards the sky like a helpful direction sign, or maybe like a threat, considering the setting. Like everyone else, 
Agent Budashka had heard the tall tales about the renegades willing to risk their lives in order to salvage an old toilet, or engine, or forgotten set of china. But, like everyone else, he'd always thought they were just that. Tall tales. But then again, that head hadn't put itself on a stake. He had been in the exclusion zone for over two weeks now, and already his only wish in the world was to be back with his wife and mother. Right now, they were probably in the kitchen of what no longer seemed like a small and shabby apartment, cooking up a huge pot of goulash. He closed his eyes and breathed deeply. But instead of simmering vegetables and tenderized meat, the only thing that filled his nostrils was the acrid smell of chemicals in competition with the stench of rotting flesh. Did you know that if you drain and dry it proper, you can make use of every part of a pig's head? I'm guessing you didn't know, being a city fellow and all. By the time Agent Badashka swung around and saw the old woman, who could not, in fact, exist, he had already let loose a thin stream of urine. Forgetting his manners, he let out a much thicker stream of obscenities. It had taken him almost a month to master pissing and shitting through those damn-filtered waste management cones. And now his chemical suit had ended up soiled anyway and no hope of changing it until he'd reported back to the agency either. The old woman came right up to him, peering suspiciously into the lens of his protective hood, and even then he could not believe his eyes. The last resident had been evacuated from the Yakiva province over fifteen years ago. The entire region had been quarantined, and until some overzealous bureaucrat had gotten the bright idea, that maybe it was time to send some poor fool like Agent Badashka in to test the water and soil levels. No human being had set foot in the exclusion zone since then. And yet, there she was, a woman so wizened and grizzled that fixing her with a numerical age was as irrelevant as the threadbare babushka holding back a frizzle of white hair, most of which appeared to have evacuated with the rest of the residents. Along with letting go of his urine, Agent Badashka had dropped his equipment on the ground, and the old woman stooped to retrieve it. Don't touch that! He reached out his hand, then drew it back again, unsure how to proceed. The voice of his supervisor had never really left his head from the minute he'd received this cursed assignment, and now it was shrieking at fever pitch. Never forget that the contaminants are everywhere, Badashka. They are the silent... Invisible enemy. But they will kill you as surely as a flesh-and-blood opponent, only not so mercifully. The old woman was laughing now. You can take off your spacesuit, Sonny. This isn't the moon, you know. But this entire area is contaminated. Human life cannot be sustained. How... Agent Badashka checked himself and struck what he hoped was an official pose, never mind the wetness beginning to seep through the left leg of his chemsuit. By official order of the government, this region has been declared an exclusion zone. No citizen is permitted to trespass within ten kilometres of the borders, nor attempt to remove any objects, wildlife, or... My people are from Taras, about three kilometres from number five. Just over that ridge you see there. The old woman pointed across the horizon and then produced a flask of vodka from her thick layer of skirts. She took a long swallow and held it out to him. When he shook his head, she shrugged and took another swallow before the flask disappeared back into the skirts. Agent Badashka spoke slowly now, as if talking to an idiot. Reactor 5 was the epicentre of the entire mishap. I was there for the evacuations. No one was left behind. No one. Not one man, woman or child. No one. Taras is a ghost town. Entirely uninhabitable. And shall remain so for at least another 150 years. By order of the government. Oh, don't feel bad about your government, Sonny. They got us all out, just like you say, every man, woman, and child. At least, what was left of the men. 
Only thing is, some of us came back. And before Agent Badashka had the chance to tell the old woman that she could not, in fact, exist, a hard blow came to the back of his head. He fell to his knees and rolled over onto his back. And the last thing he saw was the sow's head, its rictus grin snout, pointing maniacally at the sky. But what are we going to do, Iona Katria? What are we going to do? Maria Vitoshtislenko, I know what I'm going to do with you if you don't stop pacing my floor like a drunken buzzard. You're making me seasick in my own living room. Shh! He's waking up! He's waking up! Agent Badashka peeled one eye open and stared stupidly at the circle of wizened faces surrounding him. The rich odour of goulash filled the tiny room. And for one crazy moment, he thought that his wish had come true, that he was back in his own home with his wife and mother, about to sit down to a hot meal. But this soot-stained shack wasn't his house, and these shabby malformed crones certainly were not his mother, let alone his wife. And if he needed any further proof of that, the expertly tied ropes binding his arms and legs to the chair he was sitting on would do. He shook his head and tried to clear his mind. The agency had warned him about possible exposure sickness, how it could mess with a person's head, make him see or hear things that weren't really there, and smell things too, like simmering vegetables and tenderised meat. In a great blast of panic, he realised that the old fools had removed the protective headgear from his chemsuit. My mask! What have you done with my mask? Don't worry, Sonny. The air might look foul and smell even worse, but it hasn't killed us yet. And tell your nose it can stop it sniffing. There's plenty of that goulash to go around. The sow that you met there outside was kind enough to donate the rest of himself to our little feast. Eating any meat or animal product from the exclusion zone is strictly forbidden. It's a government order, as I'm sure you're aware. According to Regulation 11.5 of the Safe Food and Water Act, a body can't live on regulation, Sonny. Agent Badashka paused. It was hard to argue with that, and the goulash did smell delicious, especially after weeks of nothing but sterile packets of dehydrated rations. One of the crones leaned toward him, and Agent Badashka tried not to stare at the fleshy protrusion on the right side of her neck. A goiter or tumour, perhaps. Not surprising, all things considered. But the effects of the exposure must really be worsening now, because Agent Badashka could have sworn that he saw the thing moving, like a fat worm. The white worm leaned closer. What's your name, young man? My name is Chief Agent Badashka from the... I mean your Christian name, boy. The one your own mammy called you when she bounced you on her knee. I'm old enough to be your mammy twice over, after all. Agent Badashka decided to let it pass, that this was statistically impossible. My name is Mikhaila Osip Budashka. Ah, Mikhaila. An old name means who is like God. When I was a little girl, I could never quite figure that one out, the way it wasn't meant to be a statement. Not who is like God, but a question, who is like God? Have you ever figured out the answer, boy? The women laughed and slapped their thick, sturdy thighs. The one with the babushka, whom the others had called Iona Katria, nudged White Worm in the side. Tell Chief Agent Michalia your Christian name. Go on. Go on. White Worm smiled a toothless worm smile and stared at him with watery faded eyes. My mother chose my Christian name. Nastasia. Do you know what it means, boy? Agent Badashka shook his head. Despite the frigid air and drafty walls, he felt sweat stinging his eyes and dampening the back of his now useless chemsuit. It means of the resurrection. 
One of the women went to an ancient-looking samovar in the corner and began carefully pouring tea into each of the crone's chipped and broken teacups. Sorry we can't offer you any, young man, but we can't grow this on our own just yet. Have to make it last. The main thing is pig fat and vodka, though, Iona Katria broke in, and both of those we can do. She bent her head to sip the steaming tea, and Agent Badashka thought he saw the fabric of the babushka ripple and seethe. He strained his eyes harder in the hazy light, but the babushka was still. He twisted his hands beneath the ropes, which might as well have been steel bands. Pigs are meaner out here, though, one of the crones was saying. Meaner and tougher, like everything else that wants to survive. Meat's not so soft and tender like you're probably used to. And we haven't tried to catch the wolves yet. Damn wolves are always eating up the pigs, too. Iona Katria eyed him and the babushka rippled again. Survival. It always comes down to food, don't you think, Chief Agent Mikhaila? She nodded to a withered apple of a woman sitting quietly in the corner. See Neva Olena Vitoshka over there? She comes from Yava, along the eastern border. Way before you were born, the government wanted to force the peasants off of their own land and into the factories. But the peasants in Yava wouldn't budge. Eventually, the great men who decide such things came up with a plan to starve them off the land. Livestock and grain were seized. Food rations were cut and millions were left to a slow and agonising death. Many families survived by slaughtering one child at a time in order to save the others. You get my meaning, Chief Agent Mikhaila? Naturally, the youngest daughter was the first chosen. Iona Katria sat back in her chair and closed her eyes. Agent Badashka thought that she had stopped telling the story in order to spare her friend's feelings. But when he glanced into the corner, the withered apple face had cracked open into a rotten grin. Neva Olena Vitoshka was the only daughter among thirteen sons. But some daughters are cleverer than others. Some know the dangerous plants of the forest, and just how much to add to the tea of an already weakened child. Neva Olena Vitoshka survived the Great Famine just as we have survived here. Agent Badashka's mouth had gone dry, and he struggled to get the words past his throat. But why won't you leave here? The government gave everyone the best living quarters, a pension. Oh, we tried to leave, Chief Agent Mikhaila. We packed up our linen, and our kin, and our memories, and we scattered to the wind like frightened geese. But it's not so easy for the old. Our children could get jobs and learn to drive shiny automobiles and drink vodka in fancy cafes. But we were too old to learn new ways. After a while, we became an embarrassment, a nuisance. And then, after a while longer, we were forgotten. But some of us remembered the old ways, the old places and some of us began to return. Just a few at first, and then others. We learned to work together, to grow or hunt whatever we needed, to survive. But where are the men? More ringing laughter, more slapping of thighs. Since you were there, you may remember, Chief Agent Mikhaila, that the great government of yours was not so eager to evacuate the men. At least, not until they had finished the work that no one else would do. To shut off the fowls and drain the lakes and mop up the poison, because they wanted to save their homeland, even if no one else did. By the time they finally came to us, their teeth were already falling out of their mouths, and their bones were already aching day and night with the sickness. But we had learned not to miss the men too much. We would miss the vodka more. And some of us preferred the vodka even before the men were gone. 
The laughter filled Agent Badashka's ears, and the blackened walls and wizened faces began to blur before his eyes. Iona Katria loomed in front of him, her babushka now pulsing with life. Our menfolk would not want us any more anyway, Chief Agent Mikhaila, like the wolves and pigs. We too have become tough and mean. You see, survival sometimes changes a person, changes her into something new, something fierce and terrible. And with a fierce and terrible new hunger too, Neva Olena Vitoshka said, rising from the corner for the first time. My report is expected by the end of the month. Agent Batashka was screaming now, his parched throat forgotten. They will send others to find me. Maybe so, Iona Katria said, nodding with the wisdom of very old age. Maybe so, but it may take a long time, eh, Sonny? After all, there are no fancy phones, or cars, or agencies around here any more. Not much of anything around here any more, in fact. Except us, that is. It's a government order, as I'm sure you're aware. Nothing goes in, and nothing comes out. Funny thing, I just thought of. Chief Agent Mikhaila. Do you know what my Christian name means? God's gift. Who is like God, Chief Agent Mikhaila? Who is like God? The laughter engulfed him first, and in an instant the old women followed, dragging him from the house in one furious tidal wave of motion. The last thing Agent Badashka saw as his blood splattered the snow and then seeped outward through the first slush of spring was the sow's head, pointing upward in what he now knew was both a direction sign and a warning all in one. That was B.E. Scully's Who is Like God, read to us by Dennis M. Lane of the Starship Sofa fame. Dennis M. Lane is a Riesling Award, 2013 short poem, Blind Obedience, 2013 long poem, Grandfather, and Dwarf Stars Award, 2013 Replacement, nominated poet and writer of science fiction short stories and novels. He was born in the monochrome days of the early 60s, deep in the industrial heartland of England. Coming of age during the Thatcher years, the conflict that he experienced during the steel strike and the teacher strike played a great part in his political development. In 1986, he traveled to rural Nigeria as a volunteer teacher, and this led to a long career working in international development, which continues to this day. He has lived in seven countries across Africa, the Caribbean, and the Pacific, each country making its own impact upon him. He has finally settled in South Africa, where he has now lived for almost ten years. Dennis M. Lane's writing range is from poetry, which covers a variety of themes, from the personal to the political, and are written in a range of styles and forms, through short stories to longer forms. His first poetry collection, Eight Million Stories, was published in November 2010. A collection of science fiction short stories, poetry and flash fiction, The Pouring Dark, was published in September 2012. His first novel, Talatu, a young adult science fiction tale, was published in March of 2013. His second novel was published in August 2013, The King's Jewel, the first of the Assassin's Creed with a backbone of Stargate, and is populated by his own ancestors, going back as far as the time of Christ. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you for joining us out here in the cold, forgotten slice of Old Dominion's mountains. You'll find us again here next week for another edition of Tales to Terrify.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.